Greetings, boys and girls. It's your friend, the Crypt Keeper. And I, too, took a left at the valley. <laughs> I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists. You know, we don't have non-astrologers and all that. But with religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an atheist. Coming at you from a spooky castle in Abbotsford, B.C., this is Ghost in the Valley. My name is Kevin, and I howl at the moon. Joining me is the Monster Mash team straight out of your nightmares. We have our wicked witch of history, Nancy. Ooh, that's me. <laughs> our sewn-together cadaver of skepticism, Tyler. Hey. And our lagoon beast of atheism, Kevin. I used to be a werewolf. <laughs> But I'm better now. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, welcome back. <laughs> Hope you had a great week, and we're going to have fun today with the show. But we also have some great guests we should really introduce. Joining us live from spooky conservative Calgary, which apparently has a rumored professional hockey team, our friends of the Legion <laughs> 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 of Reason Diversion, Randy and Christine. Guys, welcome. He's from Calgary, scary Hello out there. <laughs> Glad to have you guys here with us. Well, this is thank our. Thank you for having us on. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure is all ours. The pleasure is all ours. This is our annual Ghost of the Valley show. But this, we're just letting our hair down today. We're not doing anything all that super fancy. We're just going to be telling ghost stories around the campfire. So that should be fun. Anything in particular you guys want to say about Halloween? Does it mean anything to you guys anymore? Is it. To me, Halloween is like the best. It's beyond Christmas. I prefer Halloween over Christmas. I would take it anyway. Seriously, I don't know. Ha- uh, Halloween was I, more fun when I was younger, but I, I still enjoy watching. Yeah. Well, when I was growing up, it, you know, I lived in the middle of nowhere, Saskatchewan, and Halloween was just another day, really. Um, it's more uh, of interest to me now because I, you know, the kids coming to our door and as we live in an older neighborhood and it's just starting to become revitalized with younger uh, families. And so it's great to see the kids coming to my door. You know, I kind of live vicariously through the kids. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm with you, Randy. I think the old days and now when you live in a neighborhood where the parents actually take the kids around door to door, that's part of what trick or treating is all about. It got to the point that uh, parents were afraid to let their kids go. And then it was only in the mall and neighborhoods really lost that charm of little kids in their costumes, you know, coming to the door. They could barely talk, but they get a little piece of candy. <laughs> Give me the candy right. and nobody gets hurt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, people don't know how to trace myths. Like there was that one about the razor blade and the candy apple, which is yep, yep, bullshit. Yep. And well, today we're going to do a show. We're not going to be talking about politics. We're not going to be. We're going to be talking a bit of science and stuff like that, but not too much. Today we're just going to have fun and go around the proverbial campfire. Before we are, we, go- that, we are going to be the razor blade and the piece of candy. Is it the candy apple? Is that, is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> I'm, I'm curious where you're uh, from in Saskatchewan, Randy. I was born and raised in Moose Jaw. Oh, is anybody here from Moose Jaw? Uh, yeah, no, I grew up. Uh, around the town of Watrous. 
Okay, yeah, yeah, I know where that is, yeah. So north of North of Moose Jaw, which is pretty much most of Saskatchewan. <laughs> yeah, well, but, I, yeah. These two yeah, are having a conversation right now. Between Moose Jaw and Saskatoon. See, these two are having a conversation right now that nobody cares about. They just hijacked the show. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, had to, I had to ask because my ghost story that I brought is from Saskatchewan. So. Oh, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. It's relevant. Segway. Shut up. <laughs> but before we get into the ghost stories, we'll do our usual. Well, you can see the ghost from miles. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. But before we do this, we'll do our usual this day in history. Nancy, you ready to go? I'm always ready. You betcha. All right. Okay, day in history, which, as we all know, is a roundup of those events and people who altered and illuminated the days between October the 24th and October the 30th. So starting with October the 24th, which was United Nations Day, it brings up one of my favorite, favorite stories um, during, during the year, and that is Annie Edson Taylor in 1901, was, who was an American adventurer on her 63rd birthday, became the first person to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. I mean, that's, I get more appreciative of the older women who uh, accomplish great things after after 65. Yeah, I think they're go girl go. They're just it's wonderful. Anyway, good old Annie Edson Taylor. Um, she did a, a lot of different things in her life, but she really wanted to secure her later years financially and avoid the poorhouse. So she decided she'd be the first person to ride over Niagara Falls in a barrel. So she used a custom-made oak and iron barrel for her trip that was padded with a mattress, and she thought that'll do it. Just, just the mattress. Yeah, all you need in a barrel is a mattress. All you need is a barrel and a mattress. So two days before her own attempt, what she did, and she had a manager, they decided this would be a really good idea. They decided they'd put a cat in the barrel and sent it over. <laughs> And if it survived Horseshoe Falls in the barrel, uh, and it was strong enough, you know, for the cat, and it didn't break, then they'd do it. That's got to be the worst nightmare for a cat, in a barrel going over Niagara Falls. Yeah, and how anyone would think that a cat in that barrel would be equal (laughs) to this woman in the barrel, I have no idea. But it sounded like a good idea at a time. And PETA lost their shit, right? (laughs) (laughs) How was the cat? Yeah, so luck was with them. They sent the, the, the barrels put over the side of the rowboat, and the, the cat survived. Yeah. It just had a little kind of bruise on its head, but it, poor little thing. Poor thing. it, was, it had a perpetual look of terror on its face, but it, 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 it worked. So on the 24th, which was her birthday, they took the barrel, and they put the barrel over the side of the rowboat, and um, Annie climbed in. And she had her lucky heart-shaped pillow. I know that made the difference. <laughs> of course, if you've got a mattress in there, you got to have your little pillow, too. She's got her little pillow, and after screwing down the lid of the barrel, friends used a bicycle tire pump to compress the air in the barrel. <laughs> and, that had a, and then they, they plugged up the hole so the water wouldn't leak in and get the little pillow all wet, which yeah. would, I'm sure, dampen the luck that was stored inside. <laughs> So there she went. She was set adrift near the American shore, just south of Goat Island, in case anybody's been there and they know what it's like. So the Niagara River currents carried the barrel over the Canadian Horseshoe Falls, which has since been the site for all daredevil stunting at Niagara Falls. So over she went, clunkety-clunk, swish, 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 and rescuers reached her barrel 
shortly after the plunge. And she was discovered alive, relatively uninjured, except for a little gash on her head, and the trip took less than 20 minutes. It had to be the longest 20 minutes of anybody's life. You could just imagine. Yeah, but it was some time before they could get the barrel open. I mean, they plugged it in, they could take the cork out so she could breathe, Um, but it took a while for them to pry it open. And as a result, she thought she would really be able to accomplish her goal of being financially sound and she briefly earned some money speaking about her experience but she was never really able to build uh, much wealth and her manager a fellow named Frank Russell ran away with a barrel and most of the savings Um, the rest of the savings that she had were used to uh, hire a private detective to try and find the manager and the barrel and it was eventually located in Chicago but then it uh, eventually disappeared so she spent her final years posing for photographs with tourists at her souvenir stand and attempting to earn money from the stock exchange, briefly talking about a second plunge and so forth and so on. And actually in 1906, um, she attempted to write a novel about the plunge um, and make a film, but it was never seen. And then she worked as a clairvoyant and provided magnetic therapeutic treatments to local residents. She was very innovative. She tried anything uh, to make make a dollar and eventually died at age 82. And this is the really interesting part. She is interned at the Stunter section of Oakwood Cemetery in Niagara Falls. I didn't know they had such a thing as a Stunter section. They, they, they do. So here's, here's just kind of a fun addendum to that. I was in an antique mall um, over the summer just looking, and they have a creaky door, second floor clearance section. And I'm up there looking, and I see this photograph in the corner, and it catches my eye, and somehow it looks familiar, and I can't figure out why. And so I walk, you know, toward this photograph, and lo and behold, it's a framed photograph of Annie Edson Taylor standing with her barrel, a beautiful little vintage framed photo. Who in the world would ever know who it was? And the closer I got, the more I said to myself, Holy Christmas, it's Annie. So I now have a lovely framed photograph, probably the only person in North America with a framed photograph, but I've got it. And I just so That's fantastic. With That's it. a fantastic yeah. story. Isn't that a great story? Yeah, when all else fails, resort to promoting pseudoscience quackery to make a buck, eh? <laughs> 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 Works for me. Here, here. <laughs> okay, October 25th was Thanksgiving Day in Granada. And uh, in 1923, uh, that's when Frederick Banting and J.J.R. McLeod of the University of Toronto won the Nobel Prize for Medicine for their discovery of insulin. And they were the first Canadians to win the Nobel Prize. Um, And we can go down to October the 29th. um, In 1889, Stanley Park was dedicated in Vancouver. It was also the day that the stock market crashed in 19. 29 and October the 30th is traditionally mischief night or devil's night and that was the night that Orson Welles in 1938 broadcast the play War of the Worlds that actually set a panic because people thought 
the invasion from that Mars was, a classic. was real. The War of the Worlds. Uh, the War of the Worlds. Yeah, that was a total classic. And, and you can still hear it. You know, you can download it and listen to it. Even it sounds a little tinny and phony, but back in 1938, it sure was real. Yeah. And it wasn't a quality show like this one. Oh, no. <laughs> and that their listeners brings to a close another passing parade of interesting, mundane, unusual, and especially at Halloween, occasionally bizarre events and people that make up this day in history. Thank you, Nancy. This is usually the part where I say, well, we'll be right back, but we're not going to do this today. Today we're just going to go right through and we're going to be talking about Halloween and stories about ghosts, ghouls, and goblins. But before doing that, let's set up the fireplace because we're going to be doing this by the fireplace. Isn't that lovely? There we go. Got the fire crackling. Perfect. All right. Who wants to go first? Anybody have an interesting story they'd like to share first with their, with their our audience? Yes, no, maybe? Mr. Laguerre, you had one going, didn't you? Uh, what about Randy and uh, Christine? Hmm. Should we give Randy first, uh, first call? Go, right. Randy. You want to go first? Oh, well, sure. Uh, awesome. <clears throat> I actually wrote uh, a story. It's kind of... Uh, I, w- I was motivated or inspired by my own childhood around surrounding Halloween. I know... I lived on this farm, which was 18 and a half miles uh, from the nearest town, and uh, all I did was listen to AM radio all the time because we were too far away from Saskatoon and Regina to pick up FM. And on Halloween night, they would often have ghost stories. You know, like they'd have old radio shows, you know, back in the 30s, you know, the Vincent Price uh, voicing a radio show or something like that. And it was it was a lot of fun for to listen to because you you know it's unlike TV where you, you actually have to use your imagination and sound uh, is so important in in these stories as they are in like today's games uh, sound I play games that I will not play at two in the morning because of the the music that goes on and it's just <laughs> you get so freaked out just by the music you're not even aware you're being freaked out you know as it, the game itself is okay but the music is what gets you and. So this whole imagination uh, thing is something that was very big when I was a kid. And so I thought I'd write one that was in the same kind of genre, which is great because this is a podcast and and nobody can see me right now. (laughs) Uh, And it works perfectly. So uh, I I wrote this and I called it uh, The Election. So, here we go. The notification that my polling station had changed came in the mail today. Odd. I hadn't heard anything about that. A few weeks back, I moved to the outskirts of a small town in Pennsylvania, the kind of town where everyone knows everything about everybody else. There are no secrets in a town like this, but I was an outsider, not yet privy to the whisperings in dark corners and behind closed doors. I worked in the day and couldn't get to the voting booth till late after dark. I stood at the gate where a sign said polling station 2641. This was the place all right. A church built in the Gothic revival style, surrounded by aged headstones and mausoleums. A weak light could be seen through the windows, but otherwise there was no sign of life, let alone fellow voters. I walked up the path lit only by the full moon shining through the nearby or nearly bare tree branches to the double door. As I reached for the for one of the handles to open it, I looked back. The sign was nowhere to be seen. A trick of the light, I thought, as I opened the door and stepped into the gloom inside. 
The place was empty save for an old woman that sat behind a table. Bad voter turnout, I thought. I walked over and without so much as a buy or leave, she handed me a ballot. I took it and moved forward, moved toward the booth. As I entered the booth, it occurred to me that the old woman never checked my ID. I snuck a peek back to see her smiling a smile that sent shivers down my spine. I pulled the curtain behind me for, uh, more to block my view of her than for privacy. Inside the booth was an antique lever-style voting machine that I thought were mothballed ages ago. I made my choices and pulled the lever. Just then I heard a click and the back of the booth opened to reveal a dark passageway. Must be the exit, I thought. I stepped around the voting machine and into darkness. I could just make out a light at the end of the passage and move towards it slowly. I peered into the room to see a number of rogue figures standing around what I fir first I thought were low tables, their faces hidden in shadow. I realized they were coffins, expensive ones, better than the pine box I was likely to end up in. There were two figures on a raised platform overlooking the proceedings and in front of them was an altar on which were a goblet and a dagger. I must have stumbled on a movie set, I thought. At that point, the two seated figures pulled back their hoods to reveal their faces. They obviously wore masks. I mean, one was Donald Trump and the other Melina. Or Melania. I never could pronounce her name. Melania. <laughs> Pretty good makeup, I thought. There was something odd, though, about the guy playing Donald, but I pushed back the thought and continued to be mesmerized by the elaborate staging. That seemed to be the signal for the rest of the group to push back their own hoods. I recognized them all. There was George Bush Sr., his sons of questionable intelligence, Jeb and George, <laughs> each standing beside a coffin waiting. But waiting for what? Donald and Melania stepped to the altar where Donald took the chalice and raised it above his head. I respect you, dear, like I respect all women, he said. They must have cast Alec Baldwin for this. Hey, 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 come on, guys. Guys, settle down. Um, don't make me start over. This is scary stuff. They must have... They must have cast Alec Baldwin for this, I thought. The imitation was uncanny. He handed the goblet to... Uh, God damn it, what is her name again? Melania. <laughs> I spelt it Marlene here. Yeah, but, and she drank deeply. She smiled lovingly at Donald as she gave back the goblet, stepped out of her robe, and lay on the altar. Donald then encanted, We beseech thee, Dark One, to accept this gift. With that, he picked up the dagger... And that feeling of unease I felt earlier hit me like a tsunami. Those hands, they were so small. One might say, tiny. And then my blood went cold. This was no actor playing a role. This was Donald Trump. I looked more closely at the other characters in the sick scene. Yes, those really were the bushes. What was going on? Then Donald cried out, Oh, Dark Lord, accept this gift so that those who came before may once again have life and give us victory in the polls. Then he slit Marlena's wrist and filled the goblet with her still warm blood, then raised the dagger above his head and plunged it into her breast. I could only look on in horror at the events unfolding in front of my eyes. The sound of my heart pounding was so loud that it seemed to be a homing beacon telling them all in telling all in attendance where I was. The smell of blood filled my nostrils. Then Donald took up the goblet and uh, to his waiting acolytes. They produced their own cups, 
from their cloaks, and Donald poured some of the dark red fluid into each. Their cups filled. They turned and each stood over a coffin. They raised their cups in unison and chanted in a language I couldn't make out. Then they opened the coffin lids and poured out Melania's lifeblood onto the lips of their dead occupants. Then each of the previously inanimate bodies began to stir, then sat up. First to rise was Ronald Reagan, then his wife Nancy. The third was Richard Nixon. My God, I thought, they're raising the conservative dead. There is one here who watches in the dark. Bring him forth, said zombie Ronald Reagan. From out of the darkness, I was seized and unceremoniously dragged into the throng. I was forced to kneel before Donald. I know necromancy. I have the best necromancy, he declared. To complete the return of the great Republicans, the Dark Lord requires the flesh of man, and so we invited you. Prepare him, Mr. Nixon. Tricky Dicky, holding the joy of cooking in one hand and a cleaver in the other, proclaimed, I am not a cook. <laughs> I guess you really can't teach an old conservative new tricks. George Bush Sr. was now brandishing a weapon and said, Read my lips. No new axes. He took a shot, taking my head off, but as he was swinging the axe, I made my move. I pulled one of the unholy henchman guards into the path of the oncoming blade. I had to warn everyone. I had to find the passage back to the place I was before. See, yeah, somebody saw what I did there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wasting no time, I slipped the grip of the other goon and made for the dark hallway from which I had been taken. I could hear George Bush yelling, Where's the beef? as he chased after me. I made it back to the voting booth and crossed to the entrance, opened the door, and stopped dead. The whole town was in front of me. They were dead quiet, waiting, expectant. The only sound came from the crackling of a fire and spit. Just then I felt cold steel silently enter my chest and I looked to see the old woman with her blood-curdling smile, hand on the hilt of the stiletto she had just put between my ribs. Thank you, Mrs. Thatcher, said Donald. Together we'll make America great again. And all went black. <laughs> That was awesome. That was great. That was awesome. My God. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. I'm here all week. Try the fish. Oh, my God. <laughs> Randy, I really did not expect that kind of horror story, but that was probably right there the scariest story of the night we're going to hear. That, that the characters alone made my blood curdle. <laughs> yeah, I know. No kidding. Yeah, I am not a cook. It's <laughs> just wonderful. <laughs> I like I like the no new axes. That would be <laughs> I like the oh. find the passage back to the place yeah. it was before. Oh, that yeah. was oh lots of fun. Lots of fun. Well, speak, speak. Yeah, it, was fun, it was fun writing it. Fun doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and your sound effects were fantastic too. I right. was about to ask you if you needed some background noise, but no, no, you, you did it all. That's fantastic. I, I didn't get that. Was that Cascamaniato or something? What? What Kevin just said about the find the passage to the Hotel place California. Oh, Eagles! Not a clue. Not a clue. What? Eagles! Not How old clue. are you? Hotel uh, California! I, know the, I think I know the song, but yeah, I don't really remember. He's the on the younger side. I'm 29, so. <laughs> Tyler, you can check uh, out anytime you like. No You're all over 40, everyone. Well, you know, here's, a, here's an interesting fact. Speaking of uh, Donalds and the Devils, uh, last, last year we spoke uh, briefly about the Jersey Devil. Remember that? 
And I thought I would bring that up. There is a, this is, I guess this is our monster of the year. Have you guys ever heard of the Jersey Devil? Probably yeah. last year, yeah. but I can't wait to hear again. Yeah, the Jersey Devil is a legend. It's a legendary creature that is said to inhabit the uh, pine barrens of southern New Jersey in the U.S. The creature is often described as a flying biped with hooves, and there are many very di- uh, different variations. The common description is a kangaroo-like creature with the head of a goat, leathery bat-like wings and horns, small arms with clawed hands, cloven hooves, and a forked tail. It's been reported to move quickly and often described as emitting a blood-curling scream. Now, the, uh, the legend goes as, follows. It goes as follows. It was said that Mother Leeds had 12 children, and after finding she was pregnant for the 13th time, she stated that this one would be the devil. In 1735, Mother Leeds was in labor on a stormy night while her friends gathered around her. Mother Leeds was supposedly a witch, and the, fa- the child's father was the devil himself. Born as a normal child, it changed to a creature with hooves, a ghost head, and bad wings, and a forked tail. Growling and screaming, it killed a midwife before flying up the chimney, circling the village and headed towards the pine. In 1740, a clergyman exorcised the demon for 100 years, and it was not seen again until 1890. There have been many claims of sighting of the occurrence of the Jersey Devil. Apparently, according to legend, while visiting the Hanover Mill Works to inspect his cannonballs being forged, Commodore Stephen Decatur sighted a flying creature flapping its wings and fired a cannonball directly at it with no effect. Joseph Bonaparte, which is what we were talking about last year, the brother of Napoleon, uh, also claimed to have witnessed the Jersey Devil while hunting on his uh, Bordentown estate around 1820. In 1840, the devil was blamed for several livestock killings. Similar attacks were reported in 1841, according by tracks and screens. Uh, in 1909, during the week of uh, January 16th to, 20 th- to the 23rd, 1909, newspapers at the time published hundreds of claimed encounters of the Jersey Devil from all over the state. Among alleged encounters publicized that week were claims that the creature attacked a trolley car in Haddon Heights and a social club in Camden. Police in Camden and Bristol, Pennsylvania, supposedly fired on the creature to no effect. Other reports initially con- uh, concerned unidentified footprints in the snow, but soon sightings of the creature resembling the Jersey Devil were reported throughout South Jersey and as far away as Delaware and uh, Western Maryland. The widespread newspaper coverage led to a panic throughout the Delaware Valley, prompting the number of schools to close and workers to stay home. During this period, it is rumored that the Philadelphia Zoo posted a $10,000 reward for the creature's dung. (laughs) (laughs) And that is the legend of the Jersey Devil. Wow. People to this day still say they see the devil once in a while. I just said, well, every time you see Ted Cruz, that sort of (laughs) 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 I can see where that would sort of double as a sighting. (laughs) (laughs) The uh, name of the NHL franchise, uh, the New New Jersey Devils, comes from this. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. There's a a bit of a connection there, too. All right, who else wants to go with their scary story? Okay, all right. Oh, Christine, were you going to step up? Christine, did you want to go? Can you guys hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, yeah. Uh, Randy's a tough act to follow, and I didn't really prepare anything. Um, but, and this isn't really much to do with Halloween, but I did play a very evil prank on my daughter and her boyfriend a few years ago. Okay. And this was, um, you know, one of these times when the world was ending and all that kind of stuff again, right? 
And, you know, a few days before I, you know, this is supposed to happen, my daughter had, you know, so this is a world going to end. I'm like, oh, you know, it's ridiculous. This has happened, you know, a few times in my lifetime and, and it's just silly. Like, don't worry about it, right? And um, I think they were in around 15, 14, 15, whatever. And so I let them have a couple of beers. Yes, I'm a bad mother. And, you know, this is the evening when the world was supposed to end and all this. And I'm on Facebook and I see this meme that says something like, well, wouldn't it be funny if all the lights turned off in New York at, you know, at midnight for a couple of minutes? And I thought, yeah, I can make this happen here, right? So <laughs> first I disconnected the internet. Um, and like my office is separate from my house. So I went into the house and I said to my daughter, um, did you change a cat? You know, did you do the cat litter today kind of thing? Right. And, um, no, I haven't. I said, okay, well, I'll go down and do it myself. And, um, when I went down there, I flipped all the, uh, you know, like the breakers so that I <laughs> shut the power off. And so I shouted upstairs and like, what are you guys doing? Um, you know, get the lights back on what's going on. And they're like, we didn't do it. We didn't do it. And I'm, uh, I said to them, okay, well, the power must have gone off in the neighborhood, so get online and find out. And um, so I went on like this, and the kids are just freaking. I went on as long as I could before I just couldn't stop laughing, and they were just as white and terrified as can be. And they still, I don't think they've forgiven me to this very day, but it was <laughs> awesome. It was so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's an evil prank, and I think I should pull it on somebody one time. <laughs> I, I, I highly recommend it, especially that age group. It was just perfect, right? So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, one time, I uh, one of the scariest moments I had as a kid myself, I was, uh, this time of year, it goes dark fairly quick, right? And I was in grade five, and I come home after school. And like every bad kid, I wasn't doing my homework. I was just watching TV. And uh, what happened is uh, it had this old black and white Frankenstein thing playing, right? And I didn't notice anything. I didn't turn any of the lights on in, in, in the house. So everything just got darker and darker inside the house, me without noticing because I'm so captivated yeah. by the story of Frankenstein. And believe me or not, as soon as the, there's this moment where Dr. Frankenstein takes that big lever and he's about to pull it down to send the electricity through the body, power goes out. Just as he pulls down that lever. Oh. And of course, I didn't turn on any of the oh. lights. It's already dark. I'm in complete darkness all of a sudden. And I'm going, oh my God. Magic. <laughs> in grade five as a kid, and I'm thinking, oh my God, what are the odds? But I was thinking about that today is like just perfect. And there was nobody at home besides myself, right? What a scary <laughs> just perfect coincidence. Time. Yeah. Perfect, it's a good, good thing time. to look back on, but I imagine you really were. <laughs> frightened at the time but great story <laughs> great story all right let's move on to another story well tyler you want to do yours or i'll do mine you do yours i'll do mine okay this is the legend of the bell witch Ooh. Uh, and john bell a farmer from north carolina along with his wife and children settled in northern robertson county in tennessee in 1804 and their farm consisted of 320 acres of rich farmland that laid along the red river they lived quite peacefully for the first 13 years, and they were um, members of the Red River Baptist Church, so they were nice churchgoers, and John became a deacon in the church, and the family grew and became somewhat prosperous. In the late summer of 1817, something would happen that would change their lives forever. Some members of the family began seeing strange-looking animals around the property, 
Then late at night, they started hearing knocking sounds on the doors and outer walls of the house. Later, sounds were being heard in the house. Sounds of a rat gnawing on the bedpost, chains being drugged through the house, stones being dropped on the wooden floors, and then gulping and choking sounds. So the family was terrified but kept the problem to themselves for over a year. When things became intolerable, John confided to a neighbor, James Johnson, and he invited Mr. and Mrs. Johnson to come spend the night at their home. So after several nights of witnessing these strange things, Mr. Johnson suggested that more people should be told, and a committee was formed and an investigation started. So it wasn't long before people were coming from miles around to hear and witness this unforeseen, unseen force that was terrorizing the Bell home. Before long, this unseen force had gained enough strength that it now had a voice. When asked who and what it was, it gave different identities. It once stated that it was the witch of a neighbor woman named Kate Batts. This is what people believed, and from then on, the unseen force was called Kate the Bell Witch. It seemed that Kate had two main reasons for uh, visiting the Bell home. The main one was to kill John Bell. For what reason, no one knows, because Kate never gave a reason why. The second reason was to stop John's youngest daughter, Betsy, from marrying a certain neighbor boy named Joshua Garter. So this ghost had a plan and a mission, obviously. Over the next three years, Katie tormented members of the Bell family almost daily. John and his daughter Betsy were the ones who received the worst of the physical abuse. Betsy had her hair pulled, she was pinched, scratched, stuck with pins, and even beaten. While John Bell began to suffer from spells of swelling of the throat and often had a feeling of a stick being stuck sideways in his throat. Blah. Then came the twitching and jerking of the facial muscles. Kate would blast him with curses and hideous threats during these spells. As time went on, John Bell became weaker and weaker. Kate was becoming well-known and drew large crowds of people, and she seemed to be very intelligent in many things. The Bible, people's past, and the future. She could be in two places at the same time, miles apart from each other. So Kate finally accomplished her mission for coming to the Bell Farm. On December 20th, 1820, John Bell died. It was believed that he was poisoned by Kate, and Kate took full credit for his death. And then in March of 1821, young Betsy broke off her engagement with Joshua Gardner. Kate then bid everyone farewell and promised to return in seven years. She did return in 1828 for a few short weeks, and during the visit, she came to the home of John Bell Jr. and had long talks with him about the past, the present, and the future. She made some predictions for the future. Kate also said there was a reason for John Bell's death. However, she never said what that reason was. After the second visit, she said her next return would be in 107 years, and that would have been in 1935, but some believe that the ghost of Kate never left the area at all due to the strange things that occurred in and around the town of Adams and the Bell Witch Cave over these many years. And believe it or not, there are now many books written about the Bell Witch of Tennessee, and the legend is part of Tennessee history and is still taught in schools today.
Ooh. Ooh. Scary, scary stories. Scary, scary story. Interesting. Here's another interesting fact. Well, fact, anyway. Did you guys ever hear about how we got jack-o'-lanterns? No, how did we? Apparently, there's an Irish folktale that talks about um, of a stingy farmer named Jack who apparently uh, played tricks on the devil. This is the legend of Jack for the jack-o'-lanterns, obviously. The devil apparently forced him to wander purgatory with only a burning lump of coal from hell. Now, Jack made a lantern from a turnip. So in reality, we should be having turnip instead of jack <laughs> instead of the pumpkins. But during the Irish immigration of the 1800s, when they brought this legend to North America, uh, since turnips were rare, pumpkins were used instead. Well, it's kind of funny you think of jack o' turnip. Jack o' turnip, exactly. <laughs> jack o' lantern exactly. really has a nice, has a better <laughs> ring to it. Although I don't know, I may switch to turnips. Sure, Just to why be not? traditional. <laughs> <laughs> why not? <laughs> good story, Kevin. Well, it's just one of these little did you know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. It's, it's not good. my story. I've got a sto- another story. No, no, later. but it's a good one. I like it. Kevin, Tyler, would you guys like to uh, proceed with a story? Go on if you're ready. Or, uh, go. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, sorry, I've just been editing this. This is from back in my childhood. I remember hearing this one. It was from a story called The Upper Birth. Uh, it was a man attending an 18th century social. He recalls uh, the night that he came face to face with something that was dead. Outside the window by, that he sat by, it was dark and stormy. His voice took on a quiet tone, the kind of serious tone that commands your attention and makes you lean in with bated breath. I recall the hushed whispers regarding that ship, he said, particularly a specific cabin that had been sealed off forever. The crew wouldn't even go near it. It was haunted, they said, and full of evil. The silence in the room was complete until quietly somebody said, please, go on. Being a skeptic, I had to see it for myself. The journey was well on its way and it was stormy, like it is now. The porthole in the room seemed to open itself sometime in the night. My reading lantern, which had been placed in the upper berth, was suddenly extinguished. We could still see by the light from under the door and the ship was pitching and rolling in the storm. We tried to lock the portal shut again with a solid walking stick. As, uh, as we did, the curtain in the upper berth swung inward. The ship rolling heavily swung far into the, or the curtain swung far into the room. I quickly rose from my seat at the edge of the bed, and the captain at the same moment started to his feet with a loud cry of surprise. I turned with the intention of taking down the lantern to examine it when I heard his exclamation and immediately his call for help. I sprang towards him. He was wrestling with all his might with the brass loop at the top of the port. It seemed to turn against his hands in spite of all its efforts. I caught up my cane, a heavy oak stick that I always used to carry, and thrust it through the ring that bore it with all my strength. But the, it was so strong the wood snapped suddenly, and I fell on the couch. When I rose again, the port was wide open, and the captain was standing with his back against the door, pale, pale to the lips. There's something in that berth, he cried in a strange voice, his eyes almost starting from his head. Hold the door. It's not going to escape, whatever it is. But instead of taking his place, I sprang upon the lower bed and seized something which lay on the upper berth. It was something ghostly, horrible beyond words, and it moved in my grip. It was like the body of a man, long drowned, and yet it had moved and had the strength of ten living men. But I gripped it with all my might, the slippery, oozy, horrible thing. The dead white eyes seemed to stare out at me from the dusk. The putrid odor of rank seawater was all about it, and its shiny hair hung in foul, wet curls over its dead face. I wrestled with the dead thing. 
it thrust itself upon me and forced me back and nearly broke my arm. Its wounds and, or it wounded me with its corpse's arms around my neck, the living death, and overpowered me so that I at last cried aloud and fell. As I fell, the thing sprang across me and seemed to throw itself upon the captain. When I last saw him on his feet, his face was white and his lips were set. It seemed to me that he struck a, a violent blow against the dead thing, and then he too fell forward upon his face with an inarticulate cry of horror. The thing paused an instant, seeming to hover over his prostrate body, and I could have screamed again for the very fright, but I had no voice left. The thing vanished suddenly, and it seemed to, to my disturbed senses that it made its exit through the open port. Though how that was possible, considering the smallness of this port window, is more than anyone can tell. I lay a long time on the floor, the captain beside me, and at last I partially recovered my senses and moved and instantly knew that my arm was broken. And that's all there is to it. That was his story. He goes on to, to explain what the ship was called and everything like that, but apparently that's a true story. Ooh, wow. wow. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, terrifying. Really. You know, there's uh, Halloween is one of those times of years with, you know, myth, of course, abound. But there's also uh, a lot of uh, misconceptions. Uh, I mean, how many of us grew up with the idea of that, you know, you got to check the candy, right, because of razors and razor blades and stuff like that. And uh, it turns out that uh, in reality, only two known cases of, well, not razor blades, but children being harmed ever actually happened. Poison, poisoned by relatives, wasn't it? Yeah, one of them. One of them one was of them actually, right. uh, I have it here. Uh, two in case of poisoning were done by relatives. In 1974, cyanide was put in pixie sticks and that killed young Timothy O'Brien. And that was done by his father because he was trying to collect the insurance. Uh, and the other one happened to be, uh, apparently in 1970, I don't have the name of the, the child, but it was, uh, he uh, ingested apparently heroin by mistake. And uh, he wasn't supposed to, uh, that, that was a, a complete accident, but it was still kind of the relative's fault. So the whole idea. Well, and that had absolutely nothing to do with Halloween candy at all. That was uh, they, uh, apparently that was blamed on Halloween candy. Oh, really? Actually, did you do with it? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. So Correlation does not imply causation. Yeah, they they wanted they didn't want to be, well, they didn't want to get arrested for possession, so they put the blame on the Halloween candy. Oh, jeez. <laughs> nice <laughs> well, parents. It's kind of surprising that but, nobody's ever done that. I mean, I'm glad that they haven't, but hmm. there are some pretty well, screwed up people out there. Well, I would think, first of all, putting a razor blade in an apple, it, it, it leaves a mark, it leaves an, uh, well, an mean, entry. Poison yeah. or whatever It would be it very obvious. Yeah, it would be very obvious. Well, it was the era of the, the turning point of when trick-or-treating outside was no longer fun. I remember... Um, they may do this today because I, I, I don't keep up with it, but at one point, hospitals and emergency rooms said, bring your candy here and we'll x-ray your candy for free to make sure that there's nothing harmful in it. And it was like, who wants to go it. out, you know, with little kids and trick-or-treat in their costumes and then walk into a hospital? Just wonder, just exactly what a kid wants to do, right? <laughs> go to the hospital to get his candy x-ray. Go by but all the patients that are coughing on them, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like but, that's, with a bug. but that's when, that's when the, the whole <laughs> Halloween took a, took a turn. Then it was all 
you, you went to, to people's houses and then the mall. And so uh, a lot of the good stuff on Halloween was, was left behind because of the myths and because of the, uh, the, cr- the few crimes that occurred. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, it kind of makes you wonder why, uh, how that, that myth of poison candy went so far and so quick. You know? It was disinformation by like <laughs> fundamentalist Christians, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Uh, I know lots of people who were not allowed to celebrate Halloween at all and still aren't. Well, Jehovah's yeah. Witnesses. Yeah, well, just yeah, exactly. Yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, They're terrified of the whole idea, which I find funny because my understanding, from what I remember, anyways, is that Halloween was like a pagan thing that that was in May, actually, and then the Catholics ba- basically stole it and put it the day before All Saints' Day. Yeah, yeah. Right. So the Christians kind of stole it, just like they stole every other holiday, you know, Christmas with the winter solstice, Saturnalia, and. Obviously, the spring equinox with Easter. My birthday. Jack- yeah, they keep jacking everything, right? Well, we don't, we don't have, we don't have, <laughs> De- we don't have Deb here to to, to cor- corroborate that, but she she's a Wiccan, and for them, Halloween is a fairly special. So uh, Sam Hain. Yeah, so it'd be interesting to ask her, but we'll ask her next time we see her. Okay. Well, uh, sorry, uh, can I can just of course back here. Back when I was doing uh, my master's degree, uh, uh, you know, I had a pack of tarot cards. I probably still have them somewhere around. And and uh, had a f- bunch of friends of mine who were just fooling around with them. But w- I didn't know one of my friends was Mormon. And Mormons are absolutely terrified of the occult. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, I don't believe any of this crap. But, I mean, it's just, just, just a joke, right? But they, they, they take it seriously. Yeah, mm. my dad's side of the family is Mormon. They're absolutely crazy. I mean... My even my mom. I brought a Ouija board home when I was a kid, and she carved a a crucifix into it and then threw it out. And I was like, <laughs> really? "What the hell?" Yeah. So one of the funny things is I had posted this Smithsonian Magazine article about Ouija boards uh, yesterday. I think it was, and some people were obviously posting stupid shit about Ouija boards and they believe it and stuff. So I posted this video where they actually tested it and they blindfolded the people using the Ouija boards. And surprise, surprise, the thing doesn't work when you're blindfolded. Yeah. And yeah. some people's excuses were that you they also blindfolded the spirits. Get the <laughs> hell out of here. Right. I used to read those uh, those tarot cards just like with the skeptic kind of mind and psychology, obviously. And yeah, you can... You can basically tell anybody anything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Christine, did you trick or treat as a kid, or did you take your your um, was it your daughter that you or, or your son that you were telling the? I, I'm sorry, I forgot. Yeah. Did you trick or treat or take your? I have a daughter. I, I used to go trick or treating when I was a kid, and uh, it was pretty cool because I lived near sort of a plaza where there was a Safeway and you know a small restaurant and little shops and stuff. So uh, quite often it's cold here, so it was nice to you know go around to the houses and then go into the um, Safeway or whatever, warm up a bit, get some candy. Um, one year, the local pizza place made my friend and I little mini pizzas, which I thought was really, really sweet. Mm. And um, yeah, and, and we were talking about checking candy. And in my uh, when I was growing up, that was just an excuse to basically, you know, for my parents to take what they wanted. And <laughs> totally. I probably carried on with my own. So, <laughs> and of course. For all our audience, they might not know this, but in Calgary, when you go trick or treating, you gotta have a costume that's big enough that can fit underneath your snowsuit. I mean, over top of your snowsuit, right? <laughs> oh no, 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 that's Winnipeg, not not Calgary. Yeah, Winnipeg. That's the 
Well, that that's actually also, well, in the summer, you have to wear the same thing because uh, you have to have something thick enough to keep mosquitoes from bleeding you to death. <laughs> mosquitoes of Winnipeg. Yeah. I, I actually, oh, I actually they're, they're brutal. I actually remember you know? ha- Halloween's in Saskatchewan where it was, there was like feet of snow. Some years it was really warm. Other years it was like minus 25. So mm-hmm. we weren't trick-or-treating very long. Nothing will stop those kids yeah. from getting that candy. Oh, I still did it. It froze my ass off, but yeah. Saskatchewan <laughs> is a brutal place. Winnipeg's probably colder or as cold, but damn. Mm-hmm. All right, Tyler, it's your turn for a story. Oh, right? I don't do fictional stories oh, like okay. that at all. You know how I am. I'm more interested in talking about where the stuff came from and what the... So you, do, you don't have a stories per se? Well, not really. I mean, the only place I've ever been was Fort San. Our school took us out there. And it was an old uh, tubercul- tuberculosis hospital that they had in, like, 1917 or something like that. You know, and, I mean, it was tuberculosis. Lots of people died, right? And obviously when tuberculosis wasn't as much of a problem anymore, it turned into, like, a camp and all this other stuff. And now it's a tourist attraction, and people go out there and do the Ouija board thing and all this kind of stuff. So I did a little bit of research on all the ghost stories and stuff in Saskatchewan and uh, and then Canada and around the United States. And I've noticed something that everybody has probably noticed. It's always really old buildings. Have you noticed that? Mm-hmm. And pe- that it's the most ridiculous. I heard creaking and the, electri- oh. and the electricity was acting weird. No shit, Sherlock. The <laughs> building's 150 years old. What do you expect? Hey, come on, come on. We, we, just, we just talked a few minutes ago how a 999 Ouija board can <laughs> open a portal to hell. Well, so of course you expect an old building to creak. Don't you think there is some type of evolutionary survival mechanism playing here with this ghost thing? You know, I mean, if you really think about it, the people who are paranoid as hell would have survived the best yeah yeah, totally ancestor wise like that whole michael Shermer, russell in the bushes thing right the person who has a scientific mind and goes and investigates you know gets eaten alive right so i think we we're basically the descendants of the paranoid right explains conspiracy theorists explains ghosts all these different weird beliefs that people have but i have something to say to that though Would, would i strike you as a paranoid kind of person Tyler? I don't know you well enough. I'm not, but I used to clean an old hospital, and in the middle of the night one time, I went out to the smoking area, and I lit up a cigarette, and one of the nurses, well, I didn't recognize her, she came out with a patient in a wheelchair, and she sat beside me, and he looked down, and he obviously had some problems lighting his own own cigarette, and she pulled out a pack of matches, and she struck a match, and she lit his cigarette. At this time, I put my cigarette down on the ground and I stomped it. When I looked back up, they weren't there. That really? was weird. That was mm. weird. I don't, ha- I don't put enough trust in the human brain to... Like, no, I don't. Beca- because all of it is ana- well, anecdotal, right? They probably so. forgot the, where they, that they had, didn't have the smokes on them, so they had to run back inside <laughs> yeah. and, and buy some. Yeah. Well, in, my de- in my defense, I was very tired. It was a graveyard shift, so... Yeah. Well, and Michael Shermer has that story where he was... Was he cycling a really long distance? And he obviously was dehydrated and all this stuff. And he started hallucinating, like the people who are, you know, watching these cycling stuff. He thinks they're like aliens trying to kidnap him, right? This is Michael Shermer of all people, too, yeah. right? So, yeah. I mean, the, I, I maintain that the that ghosts are scientifically impossible. Once you actually start researching things like thermodynamics, there's this really good uh, article. I think it's. 
Design Stein's laws proof. Look, at, look at this guy. We're talking ghost stories. Yeah, he's I know, killing I know. the buzz. I can't yeah. do it. Come I can't on, do it. <laughs> no, but, ser- but seriously, if every person who dies, if their energy is not recycled back into the atmosphere, which is obviously, you know, carbon dating and stuff like that, then you're violating the first law of thermodynamics because the energy is being left over. You're adding energy to the system. Oh, and Tyler, your DNA is just gross deficient. There's, There's no, no way. <laughs> I don't There's no cohesion no in that energy that's <laughs> left over. I, I don't like to say that certain things, like I don't claim to be 100% sure that Bigfoot doesn't exist and all these different things, but ghosts, I'm gnostic about that one. I think it violates too much laws of physics and just doesn't make sense. And then the psychology. Haven't you ever heard of quantum entanglement? Yeah. <laughs> You're probably quite right. But anyway, for the, for, the, for this podcast, it does not matter. Okay, I guess since you don't have a story, I guess it's up to me to tell that, the story. That was my story. That was your story. Yes. All right. You're full of shit, Swatsky. No, I kidding. am not. <laughs> <laughs> it's up to me, I guess. I am going to tell a story. Uh, the story is called The Maiden of the Well. Now, unlike most ghost stories, ours doesn't involve, involve a darkest stormy night. Our story is actually from the land of the rising sun. It's from Japan. Hmm. Now, during the late 16th century, a powerful daimyo, Oda Nobunaga, he's actually a real person, ruled with an iron fist during the late Sengoku period. Now, a proud and efficient military man, he had led many successful campaigns in his attempt to unify Japan, a land where demons and ghosts still rule. Nobunaga was said to be fearless, his years of battle-hardened living meant he never flinched when facing men. But like most people of the time, he was superstitious. There was only one fear Nobunaga would secretly admit to. He deeply feared Tengu, the raven demon. Legend has it that Tengu taught the mountain monks the assassin arts. These men would later become shinobi, faceless assassins. Nobunaga was astounded and thrilled by tales of the human-slash-demon assassins of the Aiga Mountains. A man in his position was automatically a target, and despite his military campaigns to eliminate the assassins, they would simply disappear into the night. On one such campaign, Nobunaga strayed from his bodyguards to chase a Kunoichi, which is a female assassin, while on his horse. As his quarry disappeared into the thick bush in the night, a raven flew out at Nobunaga and threw him off his horse. At that moment, Nobunaga realized his vulnerability. He stood in a foggy clearing by the moonlight, no horse, no bodyguard, and ravens all over him. For Nobunaga, the tales of Tengu, the faceless assassin of the night, became all too real. He called his horse and rode away in the foggy Aiga Mountains, haunted by his new fear. Now, Nobunaga wasn't all steel, he had a soft spot. One of the serving girls, Yui, had caught his eye. Yui had been raised since childhood to be a serving girl, and as she blossomed into a lovely young woman, she had been presented to Lord Nobunaga, and although twice her age and forbidden to marry her, he was smitten. By her, by her looks. Nobunaga gave naive Yui the charge of his ancestral dinnerware, passed down from generation and only used for grand banquets for dignitaries. The prized ten gold plates were the pride of the family. 
but not everyone was happy that Yui had this charge. Nobunaga's sister, Oichi, didn't like her, how her older brother looked at this peasant girl, and the dishonor of having her hands on the family dishes was just too much. So Oichi then stole one of the gold plates and hid it. She knows Nobunaga had a banquet soon to discuss how to eliminate those dreaded shinobis with his generals. For added effect, Oichi would release ravens near Yui. Knowing her older brother's fear, Yui would be expelled from court, her peasant presence away from her family's pure bloodline. So the evening of the banquet, Yui pulled out the prized dishes. To her horror, she could only count nine. Frantically searched the castle for the elusive ten plate, her fear turned into sheer panic as she heard her lord Nobunaga arriving at the scene for the banquet. She fled into the courtyard. Just as Oshi released large ravens, as, she, as the confused birds flew towards her in the sky, they ran into Yui in the courtyard. In the melee of hair, feathers, and screams, Yui fell down the well and broke her back. Only her muffled moans could barely be heard as she lay paralyzed in what would become her watery grave. When Nobunaga asked about the commotion, Oishi covered her deadly blunder by accusing Yui of being a disciple of Tengu and fled down the well back to the underworld of demons. So Nobunaga ordered the well seal to prevent Yui to return, sealing her fate. The next time Yui was seen was nearly 300 years after that fateful night. The Nobunaga family had long passed into history and the old castle lay into ruins. Like most castles, it was rumored to be haunted, and the old castle walls made great shelters for local ravens. It was then that two local kids, brother and sister, stumbled upon the old ruins one evening that the legend of the Maiden of the Well became frighteningly real. Hachiro and Akari did what every kid does when stumbling upon ruins. They explored. And although Akari was disturbed by the sightings of ravens at the old ruins, Hachiro fantasized of samurai battles battling within the castle. Under the watchful eyes of an unkindness of ravens, the children pursued imaginary enemy samurais with the old courtyard only to see a young woman in the far corner crying. One, two, three, four. Her hair was messy, her skin pale. Five, six, seven. Her clothes were wet and dripping with water. Eight, nine. And disappeared with a sigh. Akari begged her brother to leave her, but Hachiro was more curious than afraid. And again, ravens, like silent spectators, perched on high, stood guard over the courtyard. One, two, three, four. There she appeared again, so sad, so alone, forever attached to her failed duty and shame. Five, six, seven. Victim of superstition and politics of a bygone age. Eight, nine. Ten! Yelled Hichiro. The maiden of the well stopped crying, raised her head and smiled at the boy. Had his innocence freed her of the curse? Her lip dripping hand quickly reached and grabbed Hichiro's arm. The cold and clammy grasp held tight on the young boy's arm. Her claws dug into his skin. And he screamed in pain, blood ran down his arm, 
and as Hachiro desperately tried to pull away. Why did you take it from me then? His sister Akari was paralyzed in terror and could not even muster to move as she saw her brother fall into the old well, dragged by to the land of demons by the maiden. Her body snapped into action as what felt like an endless numbers of ravens chased her out of the courtyard of the old Nobunaga castle. The deafening sounds of claws and muffled her own screams. Akari would end up in a mental ward for the rest of her life, and the legend of Huey, the maiden of the well, would take flight. Today it is not known which old ruins contains the remains of Yui. This knowledge was lost along with Akari's mind and the body of Hachiro was never found. But it is says on some warm evening, one, two, three, four, when ravens gather in groups, five, six, seven, you can hear a, yo- a young woman weep and count eight, nine. Ooh. That has a. That is a story. Yeah, that's a. Yeah, that's a, and I, I don't think I ever heard a hollow. If you play the Japanese video, ghost story if you play the video, doesn't she crawl out of the TV and kill yeah, you? Exactly. <laughs> the ring, right? That's what I was thinking. It has a lot of elements in that okay, story. Okay, so so uh, Randy, Christine, who is the the Japanese um, filmmaker that that does oh, uh, uh, cartoons, Kurosawa? animated? Who who is that great mm-hmm. Japanese? Kurosawa? No, no, he he was the director, but there there are two there are two really good Japanese um, animated um, uh, filmmakers. Oh, you're thinking they of make animated uh, films, and they're wonderful. Yeah. Do, you, do you remember who either one of them are? No, I'm not no, that I'm big. Into no. I, I don't either. <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't that make a great um, that make a great animated uh, film? I think so. I think well, well. the ring is originally ring, Japanese, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's called Ringu, yeah. and that was actually one of the only only scary movies I've seen as an adult that actually gave me nightmares. Yeah, <laughs> I actually, if, I I I uh, I'm not a big fan of horror movies myself. I saw the Ring too. Uh, it was not uh, it scary was a, at all. Well, yeah, <laughs> for you, I guess. I I thought the um, what was the other one that came really closely by after that too? Oh, it's, um, the Not Grudge. The, the Grudge, yes. Yep. I thought that one was kind of spooky. No, anything that bullshit is just not... The Saw movies were kind of sketchy. Tyler, you have no idea how <laughs> freaky that girl anything, is. Anything that is impossible does not bother me at well, all. Oh, well, well. Yeah, it's the imagery. Go. It's the shit that really happens, like Ted Bundy and all that. That Jeffrey Dahl, that stuff's scary because it actually happens, right? Speaking of which, you guys, uh, we spoke about this last week a bit about those <laughs> those that clown thing. Oh yeah, yeah. I like to <laughs> remind people: don't go out there pretending to be a clown, dressed up as a clown, trying to spook people. It's really not worth doing. <laughs> I, I, I heard, I heard one of them got pistol whipped. No, I. You can't blame them. <laughs> yeah. When I go out, I try to impersonate a reasonable human being, and it works every time. Yeah. I have to do the. Clown and scary thing. as hell. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody who thinks, no way. Yeah. <laughs> Back yeah. in the eighties, you know, the the big thing was the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. I remember yeah. that. And we were at one of these, and uh, and and this uh, one girl was beside me, and she's just clinging to my. I had to wear my parka because otherwise I was going to have bruises on my arms. And nothing's going on. Uh, the guy on the other side of her says, "You want some popcorn?" All of a sudden, ah! And, <laughs> Popcorn flying through the air, and 
<laughs> like five rows are just laughing. There's no, nothing can, going on in the movie. I can't. I can't. They, I, I mean, I, I know it's fiction. I know it's something, you know, that the actors got dressed up, you know, right before. I understand the reality, but there's something that builds the tension that Prime. it just gets to the point where I, I just can't do it. I've always said that in the horror movies especially, what's scary is not the visual image, it's the sound. And uh, we 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 referred yep. this a bit earlier because you know what you watch if you watch a horror movie you just mute it and it's not even no it's nowhere near but the music the sound effects and all that it's it just really grabs you. Oh, did you guys see Candyman? Yeah, with the, the beast. No, the first no the first one anyway. Just the way that he says, I can't even do it. But when he says Helen over and over, that was pretty scary. You want to see a really creepy movie? Session nine. Session 9? Yeah, it's not very well known, but it was one of the creepiest movies I've ever seen. The horror was implied, like just with sounds that happened off screen sort of thing, and it's insane. I thought for a second that you were going to name something for by Ray Comfort. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now that's a scary movie. <laughs> oh, All right. Well, thank you so much, guys, for all this uh, wonderful time today. Uh, Christine, Randy... Um, If people want to know more about the Legion of Reason Diversion, where can they find you guys? Well, they can find us uh, at www.legionofreason.com. One, one thing, uh, we also have a Facebook page. You can go like that. A lot of our the stuff that we talk about on the podcast uh, goes on there. Uh, we're also available on pretty much... I, I, I have no idea what podcatchers we're, we're out there on. I mean, at iTunes and, and Stitcher and... Uh, Spreaker, you know, we're on all of these. I, I spread it far and wide. So we're available all over the place. And we also have a YouTube channel that we're kind of mixing in. Uh, and we'll be doing a podcast next Sunday, uh, an election special, of course. Woo! Uh, live vidcast. So we're, we're probably going to be on at 7 or 8 o'clock, sorry, on next Sunday night. Uh, so yeah, that's 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 when Halloween should be. It's November eighth or seventh. <laughs> this year for sure. <laughs> oh, absolutely! This has been a brutal, yeah, sure. brutal campaign. Christmas yeah, would be a, better. This is the ultimate. The, <laughs> Christmas, the ultimate yeah. voting horror show for sure. I mean, yeah, Excellent. the ultimate Grinch, Donald Trump. Excellent. And it, yeah. if you need we'll have to find some way to drink our way through that one. <laughs> make, make it a drinking game. Pop, Election night is going to be a drinking popcorn game. Popcorn and beer. Popcorn and beer. <laughs> popcorn and beer. November 8th. Thanks, Christine. Thanks, Randy. It's always good to have you. Yes, thank you yeah, so, so much for being on. Yeah, it's great to be on, and I'll have you guys on uh, in a future episode. I well. sure hope so. I sure hope so. If you yes. join us. And, of course, before we let everybody go, we got to wish Dr. Randy Tyson a very happy birthday. So you're turning 29 now? Sorry, what was that? Are you turning 29? Yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. We'll go with that. Yeah, that's the ticket. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday to Dr. Randy Tyson. Yes. Well, everybody Thank here you in the Lifted Valley. Awesome. Happy birthday, man. I didn't send you a gift. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for informing me. It's <laughs> the thought that counts. Coming up next yes. week, we should have Luke Fevin. He's actually a uh, an atheist um, activist from Edmonton. He's going to be talking about uh, uh, religion in school and in the hospital. So I'm looking very forward to look to that. On the 12th, we actually have our old friend Arn Raw is coming back. He's going to be talking about his book. 
that should be real fun. We'll be talking about ancient aliens, and we also have a Damien Mary at Hope uh, towards the end of the month. In December, we have a debate with Chris and Gemma Page, uh, which we'll be talking about the historicity of Jesus. We'll be talking about St. Paul with Dave, our old friend David Fitzgerald. And of course, around the, tw- the 17th, just before the week of Christmas, we'll have our Christmas special. Randy and Christina, I hope you guys can make it back for that. We'd love to have you guys with oh, us. Oh, yeah, special. fine. Have, awesome. have a, a Christmas story. With yeah, exactly. With Linda Blair. <laughs> <laughs> when am I... Chucky's Christmas. <laughs> yeah. When am I debating that uh, guy, that minister? That's going to be in the new year. Oh, okay. That's going to be in the new year. The, the Tyler's going to be debating Chris as well. Chris the resurrection right? debate? That's right. That's what he we said. We haven't yet. set a date yet, but that's going to be in the new year. Why? Well, it's so... Yeah. So thank you so much, guys, for being with us on the show today. You can find us on Facebook. You Always can find talking. us on com. You can find us on uh, Twitter at LATV uh, Podcast. Uh, you can send us an email at left at valley at outlook.com. And we'll leave you guys today with the Monster Mash. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah. I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight for my monster from his slab began to rise and suddenly to my surprise he did the monster mash it was a graveyard smash it caught on in a flash he did the monster mash from my laboratory in the castle east to the master bedroom where the vampires feast a graveyard smash it caught on in a flash they did the monster mash the zombies were having fun the party had just begun the guests included wolfman dracula and his son the scene was rocking all the digging sounds he got on chains back by his baying hounds Played the monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. It caught on in a flash. They played the monster mash. Out from his coffin, Drax's voice did ring. Seems he was troubled by just one thing. Opened the lid and shook his fist and said, Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? It's now the monster mash. It's a graveyard smash It's caught on in a flash It's now the monster mash Now everything's cool, Drag's a part of the band And my monster mash is the hit of the land For you, the living, this mash was meant to When you get to my door, tell them what is sent you Then you can monster mash And do my graveyard smash You'll catch on in a flash Then you can monster man